episode of the Transforming Society podcast, we're with, via Skype, Mary Mella, Emeritus Professor at the University of Northumbria. We're going to be talking about Mary's new book, Money, Myths, Truths and Alternatives. It's part of our 21st Century Standpoint series, published in collaboration with the British Sociological Association. In the book, Mary examines the history of money, where it comes from and how it works. The aim of doing this is to reveal and debunk the myths about money that shape the way we think. Is it really in short supply? And if not a magic money tree, does money need to actually come from somewhere? We need to question the ingrained beliefs we have if we're going to be able to see money as a social and political construct. This then allows us to look at the ways in which we could rethink our finance system to bring about radical change for social good. Hello, Mary. Hello. Thank you for speaking to us. Um, I just wanted to start with the question about your career um, and how you've got to this point. So you've written widely across social change, social economy, feminism and ecology. How did all your research and ideas come together to create this book in particular? Well, um, the the, uh, research on money, the uh, writing on money is my more recent work. But I had the idea. <clears throat> a long time ago, when any when a, any progressive idea was put forward, people would say the, would say, "Oh, that's all well and good, but where's the money to come from?" <laughs> but because I was writing on the social economy, um, uh, cooperatives, and and feminism and ecology in the earlier part, um, I, uh, I I concentrated on uh, what I, the, the link to the money was the fact that women's work is generally unpaid or underpaid and yes. the environment is generally not costed. Uh, damage to the environment isn't taken account of in, in public in um, commercial accounts or public no. accounts or at least they never used to be. Um, so it all came together when I realised that the present definition of the economy and the economy is to do with what do we exchange for money um, wasn't incorporating damage to the environment or a lot of women's lives. So my feminism and ecology tied up with my view about money and why why does money value some things and not other things? That's the basic question I was asking. Okay. And where does it come from anyway? Yeah. Who, who controls money? So I set off on the journey to try and find out what money was, and it was actually very difficult. Anybody who's researched money knows that it's quite – and the reason it's so difficult, as I discovered much later, is because it's based on myths. So you can't study it logically. You realise once you realise that it's myth, it's smoke and mirrors, then then the analysis becomes very clear. Okay, um, so that's our starting point. Really, is that there are significant myths about money that need to be unravelled. Um, can you outline the key myths that you cover in the book and kind of tell us how they came about? Well, the main myth is that money is associated with the market. This myth was put about by people from Adam Smith onwards. And what they say is that there was a, before money was invented, people bartered. Yes. Uh, they bartered their goods and that was very in, in, inefficient. So somebody had the bright spark idea of making one of the commodities the money, i.e. gold, silver. Mm-hmm. And they used this precious metal to, uh, to exchange. That's the, that's the, the fairy story. Because um, we so, imagine traders in markets, don't we, handing over gold coins or that kind of thing? Yes. Um, and there's, there's several reasons those myths are, don't, don't work. First of all, there were no barter societies. There might have been odd bits of bartering, but there were no societies, economies based on barter. Oh, okay. 
So, so the, the story of that wasn't, uh, if that's one reason it's not there. Um, gold and silver was never much used as money because there wasn't enough of it. The point right. of that is that you need a lot of it. And um, for, forever they, they were creating uh, gold and silver money and it was forever getting debased. Not because people were cheating, but because they just needed more coins. The, the, the mythology of money is that money has to be valuable. Mm. I think the most important thing about money is it itself shouldn't be valuable. Because okay. if it's valuable in itself, then you start to say, well, how much is it worth? And uh, so so the this myth that money is in short supply. So the myth that we have basically about money is that uh, it's, it's, ideally it should be precious. Uh, if it's precious, that's in short supply. It's good that money's in short supply because people will compete for it. And there, there was no money before the market. But in fact, the coinage, which is what they're talking about, precious metal coinage, was developed two thousand years before markets emerged as dominant in society. So you've got okay. two thousand years of gold money, gold and silver money, before uh, markets come into their own because um, coinage was invented 600 BC. So what was coinage used for then, if not bartering? Right through history, um, precious metal money has been the the the, um, uh, the, 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 the plaything of rulers, really. Okay. I mean, Talk about uh, soldiers. You talk about taking the king's shilling. Mm. You don't talk about taking the market's shilling. Oh, no. Yeah. You took the king's shilling, and, and a lot of money wasn't a billionaire. A lot of money was a king's ransom. Yes. Now you so now you say it. Yeah. Coinage was the thing of kings, and empires, and emperors, and rulers, and tyrants. Not the thing of markets. Not the thing of markets. No, markets are markets adapted a different kind of money. Okay. Um, the because the, the idea the idea is that markets invent coinage, the coinage is precious and therefore it has to be um, uh, put somewhere safe. So what you do, you put it in a bank. Yes. Then the banks, because they've got gold in the in, in the safe, lend money um, on bits of paper, which is receipts for the gold. This is all mythology. It wasn't the bulk of what a bank is about. The bank isn't about um, holding precious reserves and lending out. Banks are about lending full stop. They don't, what they lend is inventing new money, is creating new money. It's not recycling, recycling some, some element of precious metal. So when you actually look at the myth, you realize that there isn't actually a reserve of gold in the bank to match with all the notes that are in circulation. They tried very hard to keep a gold standard going. Yeah. Tried for 100, 150 years to keep the gold standard going. And in the end, they, by the 20th century, they had to abandon it. But I think um, that association that we still have in our heads about the paper money being linked to gold goes on to another myth that you talk about in the book, which is this myth that money's in short supply um, because it's seen as precious. Um, yes. Could you talk? Should, could you talk us through that one? Yes. Well, this this is where I started with this concern. People say, "Where's the money to come from?" And the point is that we can wrestle money out of fresh air. Um, there's two organisations that can do it, in, or two institutions that can do it in society. One is the state, as uh, as because if you ask people, well, who controls cash, notes, and coins? Hmm. Well, in every country, it's the state, because what if you or I tried to mint coins or, or, or print notes? We'd be in, We'd be in trouble. 
trouble. So states can create money out of fresh air. Um, and the, but the other institution that, uh, that people less recognize can, uh, is able to issue money are banks. Because the mythology is about banks is that people put in these deposits, which were originally precious metal, and the bank lends them out. And that, the bank just acts as an intermediary. It just uh, takes people's savings and lends them out to people. Mm. This was the mythology that the bank's just a neutral, um, just takes a fee for transferring the money from one person to another. But in fact, as it's been acknowledged now in the 21st century, it's been acknowledged by all the leading monetary authorities that in fact, no, no savings accounts are robbed to give somebody a mortgage. No. If somebody a mortgage, nobody is docked their, their money. The money's still there. Yeah. So the bank is doing is creating new money, making, making, uh, increasing the money supply by the amount of the, of the loan or the mortgage or the overdraft or whatever it might be. Because all that kind of made up money is going out into the economy. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So there is a magic money tree. No, there are two magic money trees, states and banks. Okay. Um, so given that money can be created, where do the limits on public spending come from? There's no natural limit. If the limits are put in, it's put in by us making decisions. It's a political decision, political and economic decision about where we draw the line. And that's the handbag economics, isn't it? Um, the idea that there's house like yeah. the government spends like a household income and there's a set amount that has to be budgeted and then it runs out yes and also handbag economics i call it handbag economics because it treats the state as a household as you yeah. say and and uh, it, this has uh, repercussions because it denies the fact the state can create can create money yes um it says in fact it's it sometimes says it can't create money but mostly says it shouldn't state should not print money that's the uh, that's the clarion call of the handbag economists. Yes, and this is based on a market fundamentalism, which is another myth that all the public expenditure comes from the market sector. Yeah. Now that means that they have the market has to totally fund the public sector, yes. uh, and most people would think that's the case, but it's not one way. It's not just the, the market sector funding the public sector. The public sector equally as well funds the market sector. So you need the two economies. You need the public economy and you need the market economy. Yeah. There are two economies. You can't expand one and shrink the other. No. Actually, I wanted to ask you about reciprocity. Um, two bits of the question. Um, you talk about reciprocity a lot in the book, and I wondered... Why is the notion of reciprocity important? And do you think the conflict between reciprocity and profit is reflected in the relationship between the market and the welfare state? The, um, the, 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 the market, the, the myth about markets is that economics is all about people um, exchanging and each trying to profit as best they can out of it. Um, people have, uh, anthropologists in particular, have said that this isn't the the natural bent of human beings is, which Adam Smith said, everybody likes to truck and barter. But he said, no, most people say most of the societies before the market became dominant, um, people dealt on reciprocity. That is, you did something for somebody on the, on the assumption that at some point they would uh, pay you back. So you, you didn't ask for a return. You didn't look for a profit at that point in time. Mm. You, you looked for some, literally some reciprocity. 
Um, I, I, I actually quarrel with, even with the idea of reciprocity in the book, because starting from the position of feminism and ecology, mm-hmm. um, the, there isn't necessarily in the, in the work and contribution that women make, there isn't necessarily in recipro- any reciprocity. No, no. Early, my earliest work on feminism, um, I, I talked about um, imposed altruism. Wow. That is, yeah. women have things without reward. Yeah. They're expected to look after kids, and, and looking after the kids is a reward in itself. Yes. Without uh, which they're not expected to be paid for, or to be, or to be paid very much for. Mm. In fact, I I, get, I, uh, I took from my earlier work the idea of a, of a one way, a one way, um, one way transfer. Yes. Like give a gift to some. Yeah. You don't necessarily expect them to be, if you give it to charity, you don't expect the charity to look after you. Yeah, um, but that's a choice then, isn't it? I've got um, two kids who are seven yeah. and nine, and that phrase, imposed altruism, and this idea right. that, yeah, it's really, really Actually, interesting. I'm feeling face. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You see, once you, um, I mean, we haven't discussed the fact that, um, uh, and of course, nature is altru- altruistic yes. to us as well. We, we take from nature and we don't necessarily give back. Yeah. And uh, uh, the, um, the, what we haven't discussed is that the, my other critique of, uh, which I've done through, through my books is the idea of why do we frame the economy in the way we do? Mm. Uh, whether it's the market or the state. Um, the state's better than the market, well, the public sector is better than the market. But, um, we, we don't take account of uh, um, unpaid, uncosted work. No. And women's work. And we, I use the word broader concept provisioning as opposed to economy. Because economy, particularly the market economy, draws a boundary about what it sees, it sees as profitable. Right. And what isn't profitable is left to the public sector or to the social sector or to people just altruistically dealing with their own lives. Whereas I prefer the wider concept of provisioning, which can incorporate the damage to nature and to women's unpaid work and the needs of the life cycle, the young, the old, the sick. Mm. So... <laughs> Going back to reciprocity, um, yeah. because that sounds like that's a, potentially a bit of a myth as well, but because it's there, um, the relationship between the market and the welfare state, the states, welfare states seen as taking away without giving back, I suppose. Yes, this is, this is strange because... Um, the, uh, the the public sector is is filling the gaps the market sector leaves. I mean, the market sector just wants somebody from the in their working lives. Mm. It doesn't want them when they're young. It doesn't want them when they're old. It doesn't want them when they're sick. It doesn't want them when they're troubled. No, because they, they just can't want give back. Um, yeah, because, well, because yeah, they're just a cost. Yes, they expect that cost to go somewhere else, and of course that goes on the welfare state. So the idea that the the welfare state just takes from the market and doesn't give back is a nonsense. If the welfare state wasn't there providing all this, uh, not only providing money, but providing all these services, mm. uh, then, uh, then where, you know, where would we be? Uh, the, this, this whole thing about handbag economics, about shrinking the state, is shrinking what makes our lives comfortable, what makes our lives possible. But these myths and ideas like handbag economics affect public perceptions of it, don't they? And <laughs> state is wasting money. Exactly. Uh, nanny state and this kind of thing, and freedom of the market. Yeah. Well, it, 
as long as you're fit, well, able, mobile. It's not so good if you if you're troubled or if you're too old or too young or too sick or too or too too slow. No, no. You're not wanted. So I had an I have another question, which is quite a broad question, which is what what are the social implications of myths about money? And that's clearly one of them. Um, and reading your book, um, one of the things that I thought was interesting that how this myth of money being in short supply um, kind of plays into neoliberalism and the idea that money is scarce probably creates more competition and conflict. I wondered if you could talk a bit more about that. Yeah, well, um, yes, the idea of money is in short supply. Um, it, this doesn't seem to apply to the banking sector. No. <laughs> There's no limits upon how if they want to lend, because it's considered to be a private uh, private matter, even though the money uh, or the money they, the, the, the banking sector creates that ends up in people's bank accounts, the, although this is created by gener- generally private dis- decisions, um, it, as we saw with the financial crisis, it becomes a public responsibility. States had to guarantee not just certain amounts of people's bank accounts, they guaranteed 100% of bank accounts. The Irish state had to effectively, mm-hmm. all the countries, they didn't let any, the, the, the banking systems would have collapsed if they, if they hadn't have guaranteed it. So, so all this money that are being made by private decisions, borrowed to buy a car, borrowed to buy a house, borrowed to fund, fund some speculative gambles on the stock exchange. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, this all creates money that in the end, uh, in a crisis, the public has the guarantee. So I see money not as a, something that should be uh, subject to private decisions like this. I see money as a public resource. It doesn't mean to say you don't have a banking system, you don't have borrowing, you don't have a market, but the market must realise it's working with a public resource, which is money. Which is the opposite of what's happened now, because the banking crisis, all the money was put into the banks. Yeah. And the um, way of dealing with that was austerity. Yes. And, and whereas the money should have gone to the people. Yeah. People yeah. put the money in the banks. But I think it's because of the myths about money that mm. we can get to that point where that happens, isn't it? Um, so because we kind of all have this ingrained belief in myths about markets and banks and the preciousness of money, it somehow became justified that all the money went into the banks. And once, as I was reading your book, one thing that kept popping into my head is how little we question money yeah. and what decisions are made about money. And the whole thing is quite mysterious and complicated. And That's why I call it the magic of money. Yes. I use the notion of fairy tales and magic tales. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, because uh, it, 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 we are told that this thing is so mysterious and and, and uh, we shouldn't question it and there's somebody somewhere who knows what's going on. Exactly. It's not at all. It's not like that at all. It's a magical I mean, world that we can't possibly understand, yeah. so we have to leave them to make the important decisions about things. It's It's a massive social system. It's a massive system of trust. And that that doesn't mean to say it shouldn't exist. I'm not talking for the abandonment of the system. Uh, what I'm saying is, if we're realistic about what the system is and how it works, then we can be more rational about how we how we judge it yes. and how how we interact with it. Yes. So, and and uh, I argue we should democratize it. Yes. Um, we should ask. Uh, the, we should ask 
questions about who is make, who is creating money in, in society, what are they creating it for, who's borrowing, what are they borrowing for? And you can ask the same thing on states. What are they spending? Who are they spending it on? The important thing is to just question it. <laughs> so um, in questioning all these things, we inevitably think about alternatives, alternatives to our standard banking system. Um, in Chapter 6 in the book, you look at different approaches, um, for example, the euro, Bitcoin and local currency. I just had a few questions about those kinds of things that I wanted to ask you. Um, the euro, thinking about current affairs, and here's my inevitable Brexit question. In terms of public attitudes um, and the social and political, do you think people would have felt differently about Europe had we shared the same currency with them. I suppose what I'm asking is how important is currency socially as kind of like a community? I think very important. I think very important. And uh, uh, and uh, the fact that we didn't go in showed... Uh, I don't think it's the having the pound that made us different. I think it meant what us be, uh, having a different view meant we took that attitude to keeping the pound. You also talk in the book about um, <clears throat> local currencies, um, like in Bristol, we have the Bristol pound um, and Bitcoin as well. Bitcoin's interesting. What what are the social implications of cryptocurrencies? And well, are, are they, is there anything long term in cryptocurrencies? I, I don't think so. People, um, the, 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 uh, let's talk about Bitcoin, which is the earliest one. Yeah. Uh, what I say in the in the book is that uh, the the most the ideal form of money is uh, one set one way <clears throat> is the euro because the euro just just has a, a, on it a number it doesn't tell you the bank it doesn't tell you where it comes from it just says five euros ten euros twenty euros um, and it's it's a currency that's very pure in that sense and. Uh, the Bitcoin is trying to do the same thing. It's trying to create a non-located money that just that mm. comes that seems to literally come from nowhere, mm. um, and it, it's just generated by a computer um, computer program. So it, it doesn't fulfil what I think is the needs of uh, of, uh, uh, of of a pub, of a money that um, it's. Uh, it, it, it doesn't have a it doesn't have a home it doesn't have a base and it has a short it has has a shortage uh, built into it okay. so it could be useful as a universal currency uh, the blockchain system might prove to be a useful way of uh, doing banking and state expenditure but bitcoin itself and we saw it, it became a speculative um, uh, commodity um, so. So it, 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 it's just not stable. No, it's an interesting concept that money needs a home. A currency needs a home. Yes. Think, yeah. yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Yes. Um, so more, a little bit more in the news. Um, John McDonnell and the Labour Party have recently suggested that a form of basic income might become policy. Um, and he called for the launch of universal basic income trials across the UK. Given everything you explore in the book, do you think basic income is a solution and a way of democratising money? It's it's a way of putting money in people's hands, um, and uh, therefore it's it's got some merits. But uh, uh, it depends. Uh, I, I don't think it should be a priority for money. 
um, it takes the stigma out of welfare. But yes. the, the, the danger is that uh, it, for people who do actually need the money, it wouldn't be enough. Because the people who, who have special needs or whatever yeah. uh, need much more. So if you spread it out across everybody, um, so you'd still have to have a supplementary budget for people who were in need or were older or young. Um, I wouldn't give it as priority over, over welfare services and public services. Okay. Um, uh, so, uh, the danger is that it just spreads what you've got thinly mm. rather, rather than having, um, you know, setting up services and, th uh, and things. But of course, um, if you, if you talk about rolling up all the other benefits of the welfare state and putting it all into a basic income, I, I wouldn't approve of that. I would want it to be, if it came in at all, to be by a, 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 a state issue of money from uh, without, you know, from, from its ability to create money. I think right. it should create and circulate a basic income. Oh, okay. Uh, not to roll it up from other taxation and other, and other, other spending headings. Because then you, you would lose all your welfare support and all your extra benefits. So if it's if it's completely new money, and uh, then yes, but if it's taking from other places, no. Um, it's my reaction to when you say, "Oh, the state should create new money and um, make a basic income out of that." It makes me realise how much the myths play into our whole concept of money. Because I bulk a little bit. I'm, yeah. I think that's a brilliant idea, but there's a little part of me going, "Well, they can't possibly do that." That would be ridiculous to create money and make a basic income. It's interesting, isn't it? Yes, um, but that that what what that ignores is the role of taxation. You see, right? The the, the, uh, the assumption is that states shouldn't print money. Mm. Well, I argue they do all the time because whenever they set a budget or they have expenditure headings, they are effectively creating new money. Like banks are creating new money when they lend, but of course, there's always the money coming back in. Yeah, so yeah. It's, not, it's, it's not unlimited uh, money because uh, it's constantly being matched by the level of taxation. So, okay. so, so I, I, see, I don't see tax as something that raises money for public expenditure. I see it as something that retrieves money yeah. that, is, yeah. that is being spent. So money is continually being spent, uh, expanding the money supply, but mm -hmm. it's continually yeah. being taken back, shrinking the money supply. And to, to me, the, the, the pivotal position is what is the balance between, which is what the, uh, the, the other side of, the, of, of the, the mythology would say the same thing, the balance between tax and spending. But they say you only spend as much as you've got tax. But I say you only need to tax as much as you spend. So taxation becomes a monetary management tool. Mm. So do you, do you think that that's the future, ideally? Do you think that's the way we democratise money? Yes, I think we democratise money about asking about the banks. Who are they lending to? What are they lending for? Mm. And the, the, the questions about the, um, the, the bank lending. If, if all our money comes from bank lending, if, that's, if, the, if the handbag economists are right, and the only source of money is the market sector, the only source of new money for the market sector is the banks, bank mm. lending. That's mm. the only source they've got. And that's, all, that's all debt. It's all got to be repaid. Um, it, it, it goes to it goes to the better off because the banks aren't going to lend to anybody who's impoverished. 
Um, it, uh, it drives growth, which can be ecologically destructive. And it's unstable because uh, there comes a point when people can take no more debt. Yes. The, 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 the same way as you can't take too much public expenditure, you can't take too much debt. Yeah. Thing goes into crisis. So, so it seems to me that there's political questions to be asked about what are the banks doing? They're creating this new resource, money, which is going into the money supply, which is becoming a, which, which in, in a crisis becomes a public responsibility. Mm-hmm. So that effectively what they're creating is a public resource. And that public resource should be a public, they should be, they should be accountable for who they're lending to on what basis. Um, so that's the question there. The question then politically uh, about public spending is what level of public spending do we need to have to, to give ourselves the services we need that aren't being met by the market, which yeah. is a considerable amount. And we're under resourced at the moment. Mm. Decide what that level is. Put that amount of money into circulation, but then calculate how much tax you need to take back so that that money doesn't cause overheating in the, in, in the market sector. So, uh, so there's a, there's a, there's a calculation to be made. Then the political decision comes in. Well, you need to tax a certain portion. You need to take 50% of it back, 75% of it back, 90% of it back, 110% of it back. Mm. If you're going to tax more, mm. then the political decision is then, well, well, who do we tax and on what basis? And uh, you, we know we've got to get back 50%, 70%, 90%, 120%. Mm-hmm. Uh, so who are we going to tax or how are we going to tax? Uh, becomes the political decision. So that's how I would I would organise it, which isn't dramatically changing the uh, what goes on now. It's just recognising what goes on now and taking democratic control of what is happening and, and how things work and making decisions about the balance between the, the market and the public sector. And the very starting point of that, the only way we can really get there is by breaking down and examining these myths about money Yes. we have to start yes. with and then we can make progress yes i i've subtitled the book myths truths and alternatives yes it's so, like three stages <laughs> so you examine the myths there are some truths come through the myths and they're not 100 percent myth um uh but also what's lost is the social and, and political history of money all those thousands of there's no human society that doesn't have something that does uh, the, the functions of money. So it's not to something to do with the market. Um, uh, no, pre-market, pre-state societies, they all had some form of money. Some of them were quite crazy, like mm. stone discs. And, uh, There's some amazing stories in the book, actually. Yeah, really, really interesting. Yeah, and uh, but they're not used for market purposes. Yeah. But my, uh, I... I, I, I it's making money our servant, not our master. Mm. It's, it's understanding that money money is social to its core. Mm. If you say, well, what's backing all the all the money people have in their bank accounts now every month, you know, thousands of billions of pounds that people have, trillions they have altogether. Uh, but there's nothing. If you say, what's backing it? Well, actually, nothing apart from you, the people. Trust. Trust You're, is something trust. you talk about a lot in the book. Trust. Yeah. Um, so money is social, money is trust. Yeah. And, and it's, that's, it's no, no the worse for having that. But when we realise that, that it, it's, I think people say that money is alienating, but I think if you'll accept a few numbers on a phone or on a, or, or on, on a bank account or a, or a bit of paper with 
with with squiggles on it or a coin. Mm. It's completely stranger, and you think that that's going to be valuable, and you can get, take it off and go and buy a cup of coffee or something. Uh, what, what social trust is that? That shows how little we question the whole system, doesn't it, really? That's quite a good example of how trust-based it is. So we are social to the core. Yeah. We, we exchange these bits of paper, a few numbers, and we trust it. We trust those numbers. We trust somebody else will accept those numbers. And they do. And it's a magic system. It is, it, in that sense, it's, 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 it's quite a wonderful system. So um, maybe, maybe we need a little less blind trust and a bit more questioning and a, a bit more appreciation of, of of how social how social we are as a species yeah that we exchange these these bits of paper and bits of metal and, uh, yeah. and and bits of records computer records and we trust each other and that's and not a bad thing <laughs> bad thing at all i think that's a really nice point to leave it on actually it's quite positive um, so I'm going to say, Mary, thank you so much for speaking to us today. It's been really interesting. Um, Mary, find out more about Mary's book, Money's Myths, Truths and Alternatives, on our website at policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.